creative company is so delicious, and the creative process is one of my favorite subjects. How humans can create something out of nothing is wildly exciting to me. And one of the best ways I love to spend my time is writing and recording my songs. Mark Baxter has been the vocal coach for Aerosmith and Journey, the Goo Goo Dolls and the Click Five. He's worked with so many vocalists over the years with so many different vocal techniques because he himself is a fantastic musician and songwriter who understands and keeps learning about how the voice works and how to keep it working your whole life. He has thousands of videos on his voicelesson.com YouTube channel. You have got to check him out. How exciting to get to hang with him today. Sir Mark Baxter. How are you? Excellent. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's so cool to see you, and thank you so much for coming on this thing. Uh, and what is this thing? What are we doing? <laughs> this started out as... Um, Creative chats because I wanted some adult company, and now it's turned into a now it's turned into a podcast. <laughs> I love it. That's excellent. <laughs> and I remember uh, attending one of your clinics at Berkeley and just getting such a kick out of everything that you taught and everything that you know. And I just thought, now this is a creative person I'd love to spend a little bit more time with. And with everybody's schedules being as they are, this is a cool way to do it. Oh, that's an awesome idea. And that was that was a long time ago, that clinic in Ber at Berkeley. Really? Was it? <clears throat> 18 years ago? Something like really? that. Really? No, come on. I think so. Really? God almighty. Scary <laughs> to think. <laughs> wow. So what coast are you on at the moment? I'm, in, I'm right outside of Boston. Oh, okay. Me too. <laughs> we could have done this in person. No. <laughs> Some people do ask me to do it in person, but I don't have the whole video thing set up kind of thing, you know? Well, you have a beautiful backdrop. Well, it's actually a backyard. It's, yep. it's literally, literally there. The dog's on the ground. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, it takes a lot to be a fabulously creative person and to then turn that all into teaching materials. But that's what you've been doing. How did that even begin? I mean, I knew you were and still are a singer yourself. Yeah, it started with wanting to be a rock star like everybody else, you know, at a very young age and feeling <clears throat> feeling like music was a safe haven, I think is the best way to put it. And in not only music, but art, love to draw, love to build things, love to uh, just follow that muse wherever it led. So with very pragmatic parents, I was always warned against following that path too far and, you know, just worried about me. They kept trying to pull me back in. And it was I'm one of five. I have four siblings and each one of us was given, uh, you know, sort of like told to pick up an instrument. So my oldest sister took flute. Uh, next was piano. And my brother, older, took guitar up, and it was supposed to be to round out our education. It was my parents thought it was just a really good balance to the normal studies was to, you know, dip your toe in, in music. Wow. And I ruined it for my little sister because I chose drums. 
<laughs> and I chose to to become a musician, and they were like, "No, no, no! This was just supposed to be to to fill in, you know, the little the little spaces in between." And <clears throat> so it was uh, <laughs> my brother on guitar. So when you have a a big brother that you you're desperate to hang out with, then you take the other instrument that could make a band. And so with a, a neighbor that played bass guitar, we started a band at a very young age and nobody was brave enough to sing. So I said, I'll do it. And oh, wow. I was just naivete more than anything. And so <laughs> just just to make things work. I wanting to. <laughs> yeah. And so it is uh, that's the the organic, you know, origin. And then from there, I I was. You know, I was big on energy. I was big on on utilizing my sort of raw talent is, is the cliche term. And I wondered how some people could become so skilled because uh, obviously I'm watching my heroes and 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 feeling the gap between what I was doing and what they were doing. And so the the questions I had were always like, how, how does somebody get to be that good? And, <laughs> and I knew how they were moving me. And I, I wondered how somebody could attain that ability to move somebody and make them feel what I was feeling when I would listen to my favorite songs. So I was just very enamored with the arts in general as to being able to give somebody an inner peace that you'd never meet and never you know have anything in common with but yet your work has that kind of impression um writers do the same thing you know novels uh, just any any piece of the arts to me is just the most noble pursuit because it is it has such an incredible ripple effect wow yeah and we don't know who we're reaching and how many people it's helped but it, it is amazing that there's some kind of energy transferred and yet yours became very tangible because then like me, you began to teach all this. Yeah. I asked, I asked a lot of questions and cause I, cause I wasn't getting better. <laughs> and so, and so I, I was kind of leveled off in a plateau and oh. I was feeling, you know, especially with drums in back in the seventies, uh, I was as good as the as the normal drummers in the 70s. But then in the 80s, drummers got really good, <laughs> like really good. And it's because of the drum machine, because of the, limb, you know, the programming. So drummers either, you know, became as solid as a drum machine could be plus feel. So it was like it really hijacked their their skill set. And some of them dove in and, and rose to the challenge. And I said, I still like 70s drummers. <laughs> they're a little loose. They're they're a little free spirited and their time is so good. <laughs> and so um so I've gotten better over the years, but it was just the uh I I became fascinated with the questions more uh more so than the actual skill building. And so took a year, I you know, joined a band. We were uh right out of high school and I had played all through high school, but I joined a professional band. I just got off the road with kiss right out of high, right after high school thought 
that was my destiny. I'm going to be, you know, superstar here. And it that band quickly fell apart during that gap year, if you will, for me. And it was a really good education in the, in the real music business. <laughs> and so with, uh, the band was being supported by a management company and the manager went to jail for extortion and the label dropped us and the sheriff came knocking on our door our house and we were evicted and so it was just a quick education in the in the realities of of living as an artist oh. um, so so then i called my father back up and said, I think I'll take you up on that offer to go to college. <laughs> just my dream here just blew apart. So I needed a little, a little coasting place. And when I went to school, I, I thought it was useless to get a degree for teaching because I, one thing I was sure of is that I was never going to become a teacher. Yeah. It's out of the question. Exactly. I'm sure of so many of us the same. And so, uh, <laughs> After two years, I was musically illiterate. I could not read a note. I had no idea. I faked my entrance exam. And it was because I had it memorized and I pretended as I was reading it. And it was, <laughs> uh, so I got in, I guess, because they had an empty slot. But but it was, again, another quick education because my first day of, you know, general music theory class he's just going over the cycle of force and fists and everybody was you know like looking like okay get on to the good stuff and i'm quickly jotting everything down and it was just hieroglyphics to me at first so i had a lot of catching up to do in the more formal you know academic sense but i also noticed that all of my student friends were not as free-flowing in the creative side as I was. So they were really good at reading, really good at, you know, at harmony and all the, all of the, the duties of being a, a, a trained musician. And <laughs> I was coming up with melodies on the spot and able to ad lib. And that's where they were suffering in the classes. So I just, I, saw my place at first I was feeling like a you know like I was really in in the wrong spot but then once I saw that oh wait they have a, a lot of skill in this department but I obviously have skill in this other side of things and so that was an, a, a good balance for me and then after two years I just became bored because I caught up with the with the academics of it and the band I was in was you know, we're playing around a lot. So I'm not really in the social scene at school. I was always leaving campus and going and playing places. Right. So uh, it was my percussion instructor at the time. He said, uh, <laughs> he said, I hear you are walking around the halls and you're not practicing your rudiments or any of that kind of stuff. You're always <laughs> thinking. And he said, why don't you just go be a singer? Oh, wow. and, and I, and I just said, you mean you could just do that? <laughs> <And he> said, <laughs> Just get in a van, you know, take your boys and go hit the road because he had. And that was the best advice I ever got at college was to quit and hit the road. <laughs> what college was this? Uh, it was at the time Trenton State University, State, Trenton State College. Now it's New, University of New Jersey, I think it's called. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, so it was uh, so it was just a quick, you know, two year pit stop into school, which a lot of people at Berkeley do the same thing. Uh, yeah. I sort of got my bearings and saw where I really wanted to go and then 
use that as a launch pad. And so then spent many years making a living as a singer, sometimes playing drums, usually not. And, you know, some some very popular bands in the New Jersey, New York circuit, if you will. As back then, there was a real lively club circuit. It was just incredible yeah how many clubs there were and this is before mtv before comedy clubs were big before the internet obviously so the only entertainment for for kids was to go out to a club and see a band and so we were playing a mix of our own material and covers and i would have a line to get into a thousand you know person venue on a thursday night and it was just it was easy. It was great. And so it was, the only problem was it was so much fun that I lost 10 years of my life in a blink of an eye because (laughs) when you're a local hero, you get all the trappings that are intoxicating the people, you know, complimenting you and lots of, you know, crowds applauding and it's a, a fun life for a 20 year old. So I just, like I said, I, 10 years went by so quickly uh, because it was just a whole lot of fun. <laughs> then the drinking age changed there and the club started to split their their focus on comedy and uh, dance music. You know, EDM was coming in it's like MTV was there gaming uh, sports bars. It just split up. And so the rock bars that I was playing at started dropping one by one. Just in in just for a clear example, there was 150 clubs in a hundred mile radius of where I was. Wow! And so it was so you know. So if you couldn't get a gig, you were really bad because <laughs> there was <laughs> there was a lot of clubs, and a lot of the bands made a lot of money, and mm. it was you know it was just a really rich period. Great to be a green musician then, wow. and. That's kind of like what drew me up to Boston. So this this is in New Jersey, New York area. And when I came up to Boston, I found the same thing. This was in 87. I came here and it was there was a lively club scene. There was a lot of bands um, and it was more focused on original. Of course, the suburbs have all the, the cover bands. But in mm. Boston proper, there was, you know, the rat. Yeah and Narcissus and uh, Bun Ratties and The Channel and all these clubs that were uh, very popular, great places to play, but a, a, but a really receptive audience to new material. Whereas usually in the suburbs, they're, uh, they like to hear the stuff they're familiar with. Wow. So it was, uh, so going back and forth between covers and playing your own material, you get also schooled in how to connect with people and, and what resonates. And it is, uh, the cover songs kind of leave a blueprint for you as to what works in terms of radio play, because these are already successful songs, but it's also the priming factor of if somebody is familiar with a song and you match it, they will finish it in their head. So as they're listening and you get close to the original, they're already dove in and, and, and will compliment you as a musician because you played it like Stevie Wonder or you sound just like Van Halen. Um, and so that's a, I always felt that was kind of a shallow compliment because I'm being complimented for reminding somebody 
of someone else. <laughs> I always thought it was a good compliment, though, because it meant that your ears were getting tuned enough to pick up on the details that made that song or that version of that arrangement really cool. And now you're able to play it as well. And so it seems like it, I, I see where you're coming from, but the, the listener's uh, detail list is very different than the detail list of a musician. And so when you, you know, speak to somebody and say, well, why do you like this song? Uh, they're at a loss to explain it. It's a feeling they had. It's the gist of the song. <laughs> and with singing, it was always, if you could capture the timbre of a, of a famous artist, mm. like I said, the listener will finish it. They will glue in details that are not there, like, oh, like pitch accuracy. They'll fix, <laughs> they'll fix the pitch in their own mind if it comes close and you represent the artist well in terms of timbre. Mm. Uh, you can you can forget lyrics, you can invert verses, and they will be unaware of that because it's too much to process in one right. in one listening. Uh, recordings are different, as obviously if you do a cover of something these days with videos, if you do a cover of something, people can listen to it over and over again and really get into the nitty gritty right. multiple viewings. Uh, but when you're playing a club and all you do is come close to an artist's representation, uh, mm -hmm. People are fascinated that you can sound like so-and-so because they hold that artist to a high esteem. And right. here you are coming really close. It's like, and this guy is in my pub. So that's that's fascinating <laughs> to them that somebody so good would be so close. <laughs> so it's a, a different criteria that musicians have of honoring yeah. every little detail and, and, and you know, yeah. piece of a, of a piece of work. How, how much of the physicalness, were, were, when you sang, were you with a guitar as well or a bass, or were you the guy up front doing the... I was, I was the guy up front shaking my hiney. And, <laughs> and, and that was a, another schooling I got, because I was one of those drummers in the 70s that had a sea of drums in front of them. I had the yeah. huge drum kit with 13 toms and two big drums, bass drums, wow. and a and an ocean of cymbals. So you could barely see my little curly hair sticking out from under it. Yeah. So when I came out front, I felt very naked. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a wall of instruments to hide behind. Um, but the complaint in the clubs was always, you know, we hear singing, but we can't see you when you're singing from behind the drum kit like that. My first solution was to turn the drum kit sideways. And <laughs> So that worked for a little bit, but I got complaints again from club owners that they just love the standard routine of drums in the middle, singer out front. Is like you know they wanted the formula. Yeah. So every time I formed a band and did that, I just felt very awkward with myself physically. So that that took a while to calm down. I had a a very good singer friend that would be in the same circuit as me, and when he would come see my band, he always said. And you look like a prison break. You're running around. The spotlight's following you. But to you know, you'll get a better response if you can hold center court and just. Oh, wow. and, and he was absolutely right because I I I noticed that myself. Huh. That's fascinating too because they always say we're judged by how we look first, and then that singer, that lead singer, everybody's eyes go to that person. And then even if they're having a good time and moving really well, it doesn't matter if they're singing in tune, but they exactly. just look the part, you know? 
And so the job of the singer is is to carry that big stick at first. We're talking live. Mm-hmm. And so there is a there is a vibe, literally. And the people, you know, in the audience have come to escape their rut. And so fans of classical music will go to the opera house, right? Because they just, they want to immerse themselves in this magic. And so when they hear all the trappings of classical music, the orchestras, you know, playing the, uh, the intro, uh, they release themselves over to that magic. And mm. you go into a rock club and you get hit with the bass right in the gut and the volume is incredibly loud. There's this primal sacrifice going on of like, I'm going to jump into this sea of people here. And it's, <laughs> it's, it, there's a communal effect there. So the band's first job is to create that communal thing. And that's the singer is the high priestess. Yeah. And so it's as the singer goes, so goes the audience. <laughs> and if, if the singer is brooding and, and very emotional, uh, the audience, the, the kind of people that are attracted to that will emerge and on down the line. So the, the singer kind of represents the vibe of the band. Yeah. And, and that's a lot of that's a lot of pressure for something that you really shouldn't contrive. No, that's that's a very important part of, of the band. And uh yeah, it gives me a lot more respect for all the lead singers I've ever played behind because you get so used to everybody ignoring you <laughs> when you play that as soon as they start paying attention, it's like you almost can't even handle it. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's, a, that's a lot of attention on the lead person. And yet there they are carrying it on. When you the, say- I was just going to say, and the best singers are... Uh, will be hard pressed to describe what it is about them that's attractive. In, in other words, when you're doing your job right as a singer, you're being yourself, mm-hmm. and and that all the little quirks that make us unique are usually we're in, are invisible to us. You know, we'll we'll see our flaws, we'll see things we don't like about ourselves appearance wise, and we'll see we'll hear it in our singing, and. I often remind singers when I'm working with them of you have an intention for your performance and it's here. And the reality is you're going to come shy of it as mm. your, your expectations are lofty. We all want a hundred percent of what we're dreaming about. And so, <laughs> you know, if you're good, you'll get 80 of it. You'll get 80% to occur. That's pretty damn good. Mm. So in that gap of 20%, new singers will feel that the audience is aware that they're tw- they're missing 20%. And mm-hmm. the reality is the audience has no idea what your intention is. They know this is what they saw and they're assuming that was your goal. Mm. So they perceive that gig as awesome, as perfect, as yeah. amazing because I watched a singer nail it song after song after song. He were, they were amazing. And they go backstage and the singer will be like, oh, I can't believe you're here tonight. It's like, I missed this. Did you hear that chorus? That was horrible. I was flat here. They have a catalog of all the errors in their head. Mm-hmm. And the audience is completely unaware of them because yeah. they had no idea what the intention was in the first place. They're just getting the vibe. They're just getting the, the gist. Yeah. Very important that we not advertise our dismay. Yes, def- definitely. It's so hard to come out of that and to stay in that uh, that magic place. You know, just thank them and go home. <laughs> <laughs> Two of the hardest words. Thank you. 
<laughs> no, but no, but <laughs> exactly. Yeah, when you say you were on the road with Kiss, it was the no. They, the band, the band, I'd just gotten off the road with Kiss as an opening act. Yeah, and so that was my foray in. The management called me, told me all about this. So wow. I, okay, they're coming off a tour with Kiss. I, I just struck gold. Right. And that was the last gig they had. Oh. <laughs> Replace that drummer. And then all this other nonsense happened with the management going to jail and the record label dropping them. And so, and the sheriff coming, it was like, that was my introduction. <laughs> so I heard all these glorious stories of being on the road and I was like, I can't wait. I can't wait. And I had to wait because it didn't happen. Right? Oh my goodness. When I first heard about you, it was you were the vocal coach to the stars, and you still are. I, I work with some some incredible singers. Yeah, yeah. Now, how did you um, how did you turn all this passion about creativity and being a musician into helping singers? The the story is this: when you're at a record company, you know, at a at an A and R office and you slide your then cassette over of all your beautiful work that you worked so hard for and they slide it back and they go and he says to me over and over again i've heard this yeah this we're not really interested in this but we really like you <laughs> and so like where do you put that and and i was asked twice by labels different guys at labels and once at a publishing house to so literally like, follow me there. So I take my material in, finally get an appointment with an AR guy, think like, all right, I'm gonna make my pitch. And I make it and they're and they're not moved by the song. And and yet sitting there with them, they're like, there's something about you. You just you got a lot of energy. I like this, I like that about you. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, okay, so you're gonna work with me. This is great. And then they bring up a band that they would like me to work with. So if you could just go into the studio, we have a band that we have a lot of, you know, a lot of um, investment in and the singer is not really, uh, you know, I don't think he's got a lot of potential, but he's not really finding himself. Mm. And I'd like you to go sit there as he's recording and see if you can help him a little bit. Literally, I was asked that multiple times. Wow. How'd they know you'd have the ability to do that? First off, that's an arrow to the heart because it's like, hello, then let sure. me be. Singer, it's like yeah. if that's not working, like hello, I sing, and so that passed right over them, and they just other people saw something in me, and that I didn't see in myself, nor value in myself. So I did just to try to make nice. I went to the studio, would work, you know, just sit there, literally next to the engineer at the soundboard, and then hit the talkback mic and go, "Yeah, my friend, I think you know you're just trying too hard and." All the stuff that I had been told, right, when struggling and I did it back, right? And then yeah. the engineer would look at me and go, yeah, it's working. And and I was like, what the hell is going on here? It's like, <laughs> I, I just, uh, you know, when they say things like you're meant to be or you're born to do this and all, I just, I, I don't give that a lot of credit because I just think it's, it's a passion that you follow. Mm. Uh, but I... 
I, again, have such a high regard for art and artists that I, I, I was a little annoyed with the AR guys and management guys that were asking me to do this, but I was never uh, annoyed with the musicians. Like I still just love hanging with musicians and singers and I don't ever feel envious of anyone's success because mm. for me, it's like that you represent us all. And the more somebody can do something and create this huge public, you know, persona, it's like, um, it just, I think, helps the whole pool that's <laughs> out down here. That's so, very cool. So I guess I didn't, I didn't weird anybody out that I was working with. And it was through that kind of leapfrog. I was taking voice lessons in New York City at the time. And, uh, and that's where this was happening, sort of in New Jersey, in New York. Mm. And so uh, at the time, uh, the woman I was taking voice lessons from was Katie Agresta in New York City. Um, she was wanting to expand. And so she was another person that said, I think you'd be a good teacher. And oh. I took her place when she would go on vacation or have a thing. So I ended up working with some high profile people just as a substitute with her. Right. And, and that made me feel like, oh, I, you know, it was just all things were pointing towards you should do this. And I was it all the way. I was like, no, I got my band. I'm writing my songs. I'm um, it's rock star or die. It's like, I'm still going to do this. And yeah. so there was, there was a huge overlap. There was a, a real, oh. big, uh, you know, a long period of my life when I was doing both kind of thing. Wow. Book uh, came from that aunt to uh, the book is the rock and roll singer survival manual, which is uh, now 30 something years old. Um, older than that actually um so my point is uh i wrote this book because i was getting asked so many questions about the voice and i was getting my information a lot from classical circles because in that era that's all that was available and as far as actual training of the voice yeah so and even kate but very empathetic singer so you had kind of a niche in New York because she was working with rock singers, but she herself was, a, was classically trained. And so it was just always that culture coming, you know, filtering down the classical culture, filtering down mm -hmm. and temporary music that I sing and everybody I work with is such a different medium that it was, it was annoying me that we didn't have the respect, number one, of either academia or of the doctors and people, you know, and I like to ask a lot of questions. I'm a very curious person. But when I would ask a doctor about what makes the vocal folds inflamed, how do you lose your voice? Usually their answer back then was always like, well, that's just, you know, knucklehead rock singers. You need classical training in order to not lose your voice. And I was like, that <laughs> seems so biased to me. <laughs> and it's and so uh, the point is that it just I kept pulling those threads saying like that doesn't make sense that doesn't make sense that this music have the the patent on you know balanced behavior and it turns out to be the truth but it's just so I wrote. I wrote this book because of the investigating I was doing about friction and the anatomy and, and kind of taking the, 
the musical bias away and just writing it straight. Then I in the title was because I found it so hard to get straight answers as a rock singer that I wanted any singer to know is like, this is for you. This is going to be me telling it straight and simple without putting you on the Catholic, uh, the, uh, that was a Freudian slip, uh, <laughs> on the classical guilt trip of like, <laughs> if you're trained, you run into trouble. <laughs> I took that book and wrote it, I sold it, you know, just add to people I was, you know, uh, I had a little ad in the back of the village voice at the time, but I sent that book unannounced to Hal Leonard, uh, which is a big music publisher. Mm-hmm. And they, they took it immediately and took it without one edit, took everything about it and just released it. In other oh. words, I got a week later, they were very excited about it. And I was like, what is going on here? I have, awesome. I, but the point is I've been work slaving uphill with my songs and trying to get a publishing deal. And yeah. then little side hustle I'm running is like keep screaming at me of like this is easy this like the world wants you to do this and so I I sort of softly surrendered to it and I'm so glad that was 40 years ago now and uh, the point being the yes the thing we do most naturally is going to resonate with others the Mm. fashion and so, though I still love to write songs, I still love to perform, I, I have evolved as both a writer and a performer because of my teaching. Mm-hmm. Lessons I needed to learn to get better as a musician and an artist, the way I needed to do that was to teach. Mm. And that's the old Woody Allen line of those who can't do teach and those who can't teach, teach Jim. That was his quote. <laughs> Point is, what I noticed in the beginning of when I started calling myself a vocal coach was that the people were just reflecting all the problems that I had struggled with also. Mm. It wasn't because I was such a great singer that I was helping them. It's because I really understood their struggle. Yeah. That you can't teach somebody. It's like I just figured I can explain what I did wrong and how now I'm, you know, better at solving that problem. So it was really kind of a backdoor approach of how me a user presents it as you must learn all these things. You must be good. You must be better than your student and, you know, be one degree above, so to speak, in order of mentorship to them. And I I find the arts to be that to be not true, simply (laughs) because, Simply because when you're there in the in the pit with somebody, it's just simply, well, this worked for me. Or, you know, almost like when you're doing a co-write session, there's not a hierarchy there. There's it's just a communal experience. And you can get a lot from working with different people, and your songwriting will elevate just simply from from listening to others. Mm-hmm. And and they also will elevate in that same session. So everybody leaves that session a better songwriter. And the song you're working on might not be that good, or but it's it's that those those things we think that are just us are little gems for other people because they've mm-hmm. not our experience, they've not had our life. Right. When okay. we share it, it's like it now you put an extra jewel in their in their necklace. And yeah. so wow, you get these 
these great, this great neck piece that you can wear. It's, it's just sageness, right? You've just absorbed other people's stories and other people's experience. And if you're open to it, you will grow exponentially. And I guess that's what I am. I'm just really open to learning all the time. So I always feel I learn as much from someone I'm working with as they learn from me. Mm, that's awesome. But you also have the ability to communicate. That is something that not everybody who ends up teaching has, being able to actually explain what's going on or how you did what you did or what's going on in your voice as you're singing or how it feels for you, what they should be looking for or feeling how they should go about it. They just go, just go home and practice, just go home and do it. <laughs> what I found was a lot of teachers are, are good, were very good at what they do and then come to the point where, unfortunately, we're such a youth-based culture that their services aren't needed, you know, for performances anymore. Mm. So the pastor is usually, oh, I'll go teach somewhere. I'll go give lessons then as almost like a retirement plan. When I was coming up, that was always the the view I had of like, teach. No, I'm still playing. It's like, I'm not retiring yet. Right. So to be, uh, you know, like I said, I feel like I came in through the back door uh, because it wasn't through academia and it wasn't through being better than it mm. was it was through being more curious mm. and my curiosity brought me to doctors and physical therapists and reading a lot of psych books and now neurology and you know and psychology wow. and I just don't think you know singers coming up go through that deep of a dive into what makes them tick no uh, in so, fact, I think a lot of people try to be singers so they don't have to get into too much. And there's value in that if you're good. But if you're not, something is inhibiting you. And mm -hmm. so if those walls of inhibition was what I was fighting through. Um, they became more and more visible to me. And now they're extremely visible for me in others. Mm -hmm. So those those inhibitions are invisible to the person that's inhibited. Yeah. and. Uh, and so there's, you know, it all becomes the Wizard of Oz where you're, where you're getting people they already have, but just they didn't know it, right? Right. And an odd gig because all I'm doing is getting people to see that they're in their own way and, mm. and the cost of that. Yeah, huge. And it often comes down to breathing and the confidence you're talking about or that self-permission. So what kind of... Uh, aspects of those things or how do you point them out gently and then start working on them with folks usually by the opposite if so, uh, i always find that emotional issues are best handled physically hmm. and physical issues are best best handled emotionally wow. and so if somebody is tense i could say just relax all you know and, and give them exercises to relax but i know that origin of that tension is emotional and so I will then play 20 questions with people saying like, what's, what's going on behind the scenes? I will, I, I, you know, it's messy to ask people to lift the lid on their, on their life and start to reveal. So I will first reveal you know, something about myself just to, just so they know I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying, if we want to cut to the chase here and, mm. and there's, very viable tension in your neck that's restricting your singing, but 
this is a, a, you know, a tailspin you're in that did not start with tension. It's ending with tension. So mm -hmm. for the core of that, we got to go back into your, into your history and see what started that. It's just guarded behavior. Yeah. Something threatening about singing for that person. And we got to find what it is. And so, you know, vulnerability is very threatening to all of us. So usually yeah. that's it first layer to try and peel away. But typically there's some episode, some trauma that's now stored, you know, as a tension in, in a singer and they're pushing through it. They're fighting through it because they have not faced and trauma is a big overused word right now. Usually it's an episode of upset. It can be as lame as somebody just saying like, Ew, you sound terrible, you know, but, but, an, <laughs> but an important figure in their life. And you know, for me, it was my father. He he was not uh, he was not happy with me pursuing music and especially singing. And uh, what I would relay to people who have that struggle with a parent that's not supportive is I had to wait until I was fifty to discover that my father's you know uh, dis dismay at my singing was because he wanted to be a singer in the chorus at the Metropolitan Opera. It got my mother pregnant and his life took an, an adjacent turn. So he was, he was very chagrined that he couldn't follow that. I was 50 when I finally got that out of him. And I was furious because I had spent from from you know 10 years old till for, for I spent 40 years swimming against this stream of negativity that I was like wow, am I really that bad am I am I not you know like how could some people be naturally good at something and I have to struggle so hard yeah. made sense and it was simply this I had my father's voice in my narrative in there caught just saying he would often just say, it's just not meant to be. You're, you don't have the DNA. We don't have the genes in this family. Whoa. That's what he had to tell himself. But that wasn't the way it was relayed to me. It was relayed of like, no, you're down the wrong path. You, We can't do this. We don't sing in this family. Wow. We're not Pavarotti. We don't have those genes. It was – and so – Obviously, I've discovered a lot about genes and DNA and stuff because I I was set on the wrong path. And I uh, so it allowed me to really, you know, have a deep, deep understanding because it's it was difficult to prove my father wrong. He was a really smart guy and very convincing. Mm. And just that was a tall mountain for me to climb. Mm. And it was unnecessary to climb, but I chose to climb it. And, and so what did he want you to be? Oh, anything, you know, he was an engineer, so architect, you know, something with a degree that you could hang on a wall and he could announce to his friends and be proud. And, it, <laughs> you know, and, and it, I shouldn't say it like that. It's not like he wasn't, not like he wasn't proud of me, but it took him so long to acknowledge that I had reached a certain status in my field mm -hmm. I, just before he died. Uh, and so it was, it was just a long personal struggle I had with him. And that's not uncommon. I hear stories no. ah. and yeah. bringing it up because it's so common, not that I'm right. so. And yeah. so once I start, you know, revealing my story, I 
I hear a lot of the same story. It was a mother or an aunt or somebody or, you know, a favorite school teacher that then, you know, really put the curse on them by saying like, eh, I don't think you're meant to do this kind of thing. Mm. Adults have such power over children that they do not realize. I know. So often when I say like my father was just pissed that he didn't get to be a singer and then he put that on me and he didn't mean to, but he didn't realize that his words were really narrow in their scope. And what I often say to people is that chorus you got kicked out of, that director probably just missed her coffee that day. And she was just really annoyed and kind of gave you the ax because she was frustrated or had a fight with her. No, like they're human. And so- not mean for that dart to stick forever (laughs) what we tend to do is we just keep putting it back in our heart right i know keep reminding ourselves of this limitation so we then we train in the limitation and so getting someone to see not their episode but just that that's stuff that people do that we train in limitation right that Mm -hmm. opens the topic for me so it's a little easier for people to talk about Hmm. I, you know, I often have very deep discussions, if allowed, with people I'm working with, and I find those to be more productive for their skill set than the drilling of exercises. Absolutely. Because then when we get to singing, it is so clear that they've taken a little of the rubble out of the way and are have a better path to let the sound through. Yeah, because if they're all tense and choking it off and it's all emotional... You can train that instrument as much as you want, but it's still choked and cut off and unemotional. (laughs) Uh, Wow. So on the opposite side, what I said before was, you know, if somebody has an emotional issue, some people will come to me and they're clearly just freaking out, very anxious, you know, uh, and and admittedly, they'll tell me, you know, ah. you know, I take this for for my anxiety. I take this for depression. I'm just so with mm-hmm. that kind of situation. I'm always like, okay, we're not touching that. You just <laughs> your mouth. You just need, you know, as a baby breathes. You just need to be able to move your head because when mm-hmm. you get on lockdown, and so I'll go through simple physical actions with them as they yeah. sing, and you know, there's constant feedback loop going on so the brain is always assessing the uh, us so the body is communicating to the brain and if and if breathing is calm the body is saying to the brain we're good and if Mm -hmm. the calm the body is saying to the brain we're freaking out right now and so the brain will run with that and then say, okay, let's get out of here. Let's stop this guy from singing. Let's, you know, what have you. Shut right down. down. Make the mouth dry. Stop this high note from coming out. So <laughs> interrupted and whichever way at any point, it doesn't matter. A loop is a loop. So anywhere you can interrupt it, it just disrupts that communication line. And then yeah. you a little bit of tidbit of of and you can get people out of that stuck groove that they've built so deeply and feel so comfortable in exactly they know it well Uh. (laughs) and so i feel for everyone you know that i work with just simply because i see myself it's like i i've been there yeah yeah i heard benny greb say that he's a drummer he said the whole reason drummers rush their fills is because they hold their breath before they start the fill and the brain goes 
there's no oxygen. Hurry up and finish. <laughs> and that's why they speed up. <laughs> so this is cool, too, because my drumming has improved a lot because of singing. I'm sure. So has my basketball. So has, you know, and and my drumming now influences my singing positively, as does riding a motorcycle well does. It's like after, when you get to a certain mindset, everything helps everything because yeah. goal is the same. Where's the ease in this action? Did you ever read that book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Yeah, some time ago, yes. Me too. That was really cool. <laughs> so it's all just those universals, you know, truths, right? It's like yeah, yeah. once you get to a certain place of observation, you see the similarity in everything. And, and that's comforting because it's like, all right, this makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. Uh, underneath it all, there's... Uh, reliable truths and checks and balances, I guess, and uh, power. If you could just tap into the power. Like I was saying on a, another chat recently, I was saying to somebody, I often tell my students to try to channel their favorite artists or players um, so that they could step into their shoes for a minute and feel that greatness. And the person I was talking to corrected me and said, just remember who you are. I mean, you're a spirit, you know, you're, you're a God, you're, you know, you're, you're infinite intelligence. You have access to everything. Like just be your real self. And I'm like, it's the same thing in a way because, you know, but like some people can't even go to their favorite artist, let alone go be a God, you know? <laughs> so that, those kind of sayings, you know, people say that to me so often of like, you're just in the way when I was a young struggling singer or struggling drummer, it was like, you're in your own way. And I was like, yeah, but when I get out of the way, I sound worse. <laughs> <laughs> so I, need, I was overthinking everything. And yeah. so it's well, just. They point out all these things you should focus on. And sometimes they're in the wrong order, you know, or they're, they stump the part that was naturally working. Now you're thinking of too many things and it's stumping their computer. Got it. There's so many things to think about and do. But I remember hearing when I was a student at Berkeley, uh, if you want to paint the perfect picture, make yourself perfect and paint naturally. <laughs> and for many years, I was like, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> but I think it's talking about the same thing, you know. It's like, get out of your way, have fun, remember that you're a wizard, Harry, and, and just paint. <laughs> the flow. Yeah, that flow. I remember uh, feeling that flow at 10 years old. I don't know how it happened. All of a sudden, I was just in this other space, and I started writing songs, and it was the coolest feeling ever. And it was like, I just want to do this forever. I just love this. <laughs> but you probably feel it with a lot of things. You probably feel it on the motorcycle. You feel it when you're teaching with a certain connection. Yeah. You feel it when you're drumming and singing. Again, I'm... I'm spread out because you know i i love to make furniture i like to paint i love to I, I i am i love creating and so it doesn't matter what realm that is and so, so cool. um so it so i could teach furniture building if if i had a better skill set i've always got all these irons going so i always have three songs that i have yet to finish and uh, a piece over here i'm building in my wood shop but not done yet and uh it's, you know it, it, so i'm, I'm 
but I'm happy because or I'm content is a better word. I'm content because I know whichever I'm interested in, I can go this way and work on a chorus of a song. And usually when I'm doing that, I go, oh, now I know how to do the joint on that table that I'm building. And when <laughs> the table, I'm like, oh, now I know how to finish that chapter I'm writing. Okay. So it's yeah. a peripheral in creativity, right? It's like the thing yeah. you sometimes it's, it's too close to see, but it's in the, it's in this peripheral that I'm like, oh, I got a great idea for, for that song. Yeah. 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 It's because the other things are allowing your alignment exactly. and you're getting right back into the flow. And then you go, oh, there it is. Lucky enough to have a lot of creative muses because that keeps the creativity flowing. So it's, you know, often I'll open up my email in the morning. I get a lot of questions from singers and sometimes I'll just feel bogged down. It's like, oh, this is a complicated thing to explain. And then I'll, you know, start watering my plants out in front of my house or something. And then, then a simpler way to answer that email will come to me and I'll literally put the hose down and go finish the email. Mm -hmm. I tried to trudge it out at that moment. I would, it would be a convoluted answer and wouldn't be so concise. Yeah. So away I find to be really helpful. That's a really good point because when I was younger and I felt like oh, I don't want to do this right now I would feel like oh maybe you're uh, flubbing it off and you're not doing what you should do right now you should answer this it's like but if you don't have the answer <laughs> it's better to wait for it to come. You know? <laughs> and so Grace I'm, I'm a huge fan of when something is done gracefully and mm. I try to you know, so, so I try to uphold that as best as possible and cool. it, you know, an answer I'm contriving and I'll be like, yeah, this is hackneyed and I'll just wait for a more graceful answer. And usually it's a single sentence, whereas a paragraph, you know, at first seemed to be conveying the, the answer, but usually <laughs> great at that. She would look at my writing. She was a uh, an English teacher, and, and of creative writing, and she would tap her red pen on my manuscript, and she'd be like, she'd read a paragraph. She's like, "What are you trying to say?" <laughs> and just repeat a little tiny sentence. And she's like, "Why don't you write that?" <laughs> it took you know being it took being challenged like that. So after yeah. a while, I hear my mother's voice a lot, and I'll have a convoluted way to say something and then be like, what are you trying to say? Blah, blah, blah. Or just say that. <laughs> right. more we have to learn that. We have to learn that as a process or even as a, a segue into something. Cause I'll, I'll even do that with lyrics. Sometimes it's like, well, what would Paul McCartney write here? Or how would Stevie wonder finish this baseline? Or, you know, it's like, there's just something about that, which I think maybe helps that peripheral flow that you're talking about. Three. That's so cool. Take pressure off. How would this one do it? How would that one do it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of folks forget that uh, we're all made out of the same stuff and that we're all human and we're all probably as equally as creative, but some of us allow it and allow that greatness and a lot of us stand in, in the way of it so that we think we're not as good. Agreed. I also find equally human is that longing or connection yes. and for beauty sounds surface because we now have a, such a surface definition of beauty, but in the, in the realm of, you know, ancient time, beauty must have been so 
magnificent to them of mm. you know of nature or a uh, you know or somebody who's constructed well for that culture must have been godlike because uh because it would be so rare because it would be so hard life was so hard and oh. now so spoiled with so much beauty and so much that it becomes diluted in in the noise of of that dumb and happy we are so spoiled as a species that it is it's hard to appreciate popularity <laughs> of something beautiful <laughs> well it's like you were saying before with the uh children who may not have been encouraged before a lot of us ended up with a lot of uh jet fuel to say i'll prove you wrong mm. and go out and do it anyway or a stick to itiveness that was unshakable because of all that negativity whereas there have been generations now where children have been taught you're so great and you're so wonderful right from the beginning and anything you want to do is possible that they're afraid to try anything because they don't want to fall from that title of being great exactly i see that every day too i'm sure you do and it's a disservice yeah, and who knew? I, I don't really know where that comfort place is because it seems like no matter how somebody was brought up and they try to do the opposite for their kids, they get a different kid that didn't need that info. They needed a different info. <laughs> or yeah. it's like, you know, teacher evaluations. You... Or not, but parents are always wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But what's interesting, too, is that they haven't given up on that youth culture thing because that youth culture wasn't here in the early 60s. It was the Beatles that brought that youth culture where they started paying attention to these young ones. And now they keep thinking that the formula is still to find the four young guys. And it's like, no, that happened once. <laughs> it's not <Wait>. a formula. <laughs> exactly. And so it just culture is invisible to us, but it it is our program. It's our mm -hmm. outcome. And so we are all abiding by, our, you know, whatever culture we're immersed in. And it's important for artists to try and pull up from there because that's that's how we move the culture along is the, the artists of the of the century have always been the, the the Sherpas, if you will, guiding us to the next place. Right. I love how you brought up connection, though, too, because, I mean, that's why I started just wanting to talk to some friends that were in other countries and around this country, I was like, I just need more company, you know. <laughs> but uh, what other ways do you feel connected? The connection for me is, like I said, I can, I feel connected to music or anything because I know that it's a, it's a bottle that I'm sending out into the ocean with a mm. message that will find somebody will find it will be connected i won't be there mm. but i'm connected to the song i write because i know someday maybe someone will hear this or you know with the stuff i write and now with the videos i post about singing i feel connected to people i've never met mm. uh, and it's a great feeling because i know i because you i'm i don't ever feel alone uh, because I know I'm connected to a wide array of artists and I, I often feel lonely, but that's a chemical imbalance in me that I used to identify as a problem. And now I see it just as 
<clears throat> like somebody who who has asthma. It's it, <laughs> they would rather not. But so you know, we all have a chemistry in our in our brains that hmm. can elicit certain feelings, and if we yeah. allow feelings to run us, uh, uh, it can be trouble. Definitely, definitely. Have you heard of uh, Dana Wild? Yes. How have I heard? Uh, she does a brain training uh, podcast and for entrepreneurs. Sounds familiar. <clears throat> really good. You'd probably really like her stuff and uh, the teachings of Abraham Hicks. But yeah, I think there really is, uh, we're certainly chemistry sets. And so there really is an imbalance and it's easy to get that out of balance. Mm. Uh, but there's also those grooves like that movie, What the Bleep Do We Know, right? where there's so many grooves of feeling lonely that I have or melancholy or, you know, if you look at all the bad things going on in anybody's life or in the world, you could just stay in overwhelm. Yeah, easily. Yeah. And it's, it's not a healthy place to be. I've learned to view the alarm that's constantly going off in my head. I've learned to view it as my neighbor's car alarm. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> I don't need to respond to it because it's yeah. not I hear it in the background, but I, I don't have to. It's not my responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's gonna, if it's going to knock you off your game and keep you from being your best self for all the people that are depending on you, you're not helping anybody by yeah. getting all upset by it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. Uh, when you live in a city, you hear a lot of alarms and you train your brain not to respond to them. Right. Live out in the country somewhere quiet and you hear an alarm. You're like, whoa, what's going on? Exactly. <laughs> I also like that you have so many creative outlets. I guess somebody might add up some of mine and think that they're all different outlets as well. And maybe they are diversions like writing a song, playing a few different instruments, recording the parts loving to arrange or sing all the back, you know, all the vocals and the backgrounds, um, producing, mixing, mastering, that kind of thing. Because but, don't you feel some days, I just feel like mixing today. I'm not going to write. go, what have I got? Anything ready? <laughs> and, and to mix on those days you feel like mixing, that's a good mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yes. will be detail right and on the day you feel like writing that's not a good day to mix <laughs> it also takes a little doing and getting to know yourself as to which one is calling today uh, sometimes i even just ask myself okay what would feel the most fulfilling to do right now what's calling me or what feels the most fun and just yeah. wait for that little answer when i that's an extremely luxurious place to be right that you have yeah. the which one calls right but then you have classes to teach i have lessons to give right yeah, so yeah. At some point you know 12 o'clock comes and i got a student coming in so the idea for me is always uh i i i'm always open to the people coming in and yeah. i've learned if if i do that then my day takes these wonderful journeys because i'll have you know mm bunch of students in a single day and not one of them will have a repetitive there won't be a repetitive lesson in there so there'll be a beginner or somebody very advanced there'll be somebody have mm. 
house and that's all lesson becomes about that and somebody else will have a song that's really kicking their ass and so it's just it my day you know because of that ability to say to yourself okay where will i let this lead me i do the same thing when i teach i say okay whatever the student brings in that's what we're going to address mm-hmm. and of me having like lesson one plan lesson two plan lesson three plan yeah i i teach in a reverse fashion of just being where i can be of most value on um, in that hour that i'm going to be with somebody that's great that's what i love to do too i mean we have a curriculum we have to get through but you know sometimes they're ready for a different thing yeah on a different week and it's just better to roll with what's flowing i find that yeah yeah I remember writing to you when uh, Paul McCartney's voice started to change and you were saying it's definitely something in the brain and it could help. You know, like I I was saying, could you help him? You said, sure, but, you know, he'd have to want to. Um, Somebody as successful as he at such an early age, got to respect the program. That was the golden vocal program he was running. (laughs) That that man could sing. And so. So, so his now, now you're his brain, and the body parts aren't responding as they did when he was 30. Let's say, mm, yeah, there is very little inspiration for the brain to adjust to the instrument he has today. It is it's running that program that got him to be a legend, and it is I find that to be true with uh, a lot of older trained singers. And I'll hear the lament over and over again, but I never had to work on this before. My voice would always respond like this or always respond like that. And I always answer with, yeah, I never had to wear readers before either. (laughs) Our bodies are changing. And if pain is calibrating along with that instrument, so uh, uh, you will be able to sing at at a ripe old age. But if you're not calibrating, it will seem, and there'll be evidence that, oh yeah, aging and singing don't go together. The, <laughs> the epithelial layer, the, the layer on the outside of the fold, loses its collagen, loses its elasticity. Hydration is an, is an issue. The, the muscle fibers aren't as elastic. Mm. There, there are many things that you can you know, sort of like tilt the, the scales to say like, yeah, you're just getting old. That's all there is to it. But this mm. thing that we're always calibrating for is um, the voice is so tied to identity that it, the brain has a very hard time adjusting the pitch, the medial speech range, the amount of, of movement. We've got a, an actuator, that's the air that stimulates. We got the vibrator right here, the larynx, which has the vocal folds inside. Then we've got a resonator. And these mm. properties are every acoustic instrument has the same three properties. And then we have an articulator up here that like a wah-wah pedal, right? Yeah. It's sounds coming through us, and we've come so identified with our voice that I had to I had to learn to speak when I really started teaching, you know, big time. So I, I'm always 12 hours, uh, so from 8 in the morning till 8 at night, uh, just talking, 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 and singing, singing, singing. So I, I use my voice nonstop. And I had to make an adjustment in the way I speak early on because I used to lose my voice teaching. Wow. 
not really cool for a voice coach to lose their voice. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> for uh, what's that called? Proof of viability or whatever that, you know, what, what they say in Shark Tank all the time. Concept. Proof of concept. Uh, <laughs> oh, so I, back when I had the overlap, I was gigging and teaching. I would start to lose my voice during the day because I was talking so much and then get it back as I'm warming up for my gig because the the vocal exercises were my ritual. I, I knew what I should sound like when I'm doing them. So that would always sort of save my voice was the three hours of singing I did at night would bring my voice back. And then I would teach for, you know, about six hours at those days, you know, in the day and start to lose it and then get it back. So that cycle, I needed to break that cycle. And it was simply where, how I was allowing myself to speak. I also think there was a factor in there of, I was trying to prove to myself that I, sh that I could teach. So that load was on my, my voice. And once I lifted that emotional burden and changed the physical nature of my speech, I have never had a problem. I'm 67 years old and I'm, I'm not had any issues uh, speaking all day and then singing all night. Wow. So it's, it's really just a matter of if you allow your brain uh, the freedom to calibrate to the instrument you have today, because this includes menstruating for females, includes allergies, which I have right now, it includes colds, you know, COVID, all these things. As a singer, you're going to get hit with it all. And so the instrument's going to change. Hmm. Make is, is a lot like uh, obtaining a new, a different used guitar every day. Wow, that's a great analogy. <laughs> today that day so so if i if i get a, a different guitar the action might be terrible on this one the soundboard might be cracked so it gets a weird or it might be a beautiful instrument and so singers have to explore the instrument they're they're waking up with because relative humidity diet sleep there's just such a huge list of influences yeah and mostly I can take my voice to where I want it to be. So it's pretty consistent day in, day out. But on the odd day that it's not where I'd like it to be, I make sure I use comfort first as my guide. So I'm asking my brain, like, find where my voice is comfortable. Hmm. And we'll start from there. So I'll ask more and more of the control of my voice or the range of it. But you have to start with what's comfortable first. Often people will start with that same old just, <clears throat> e oh man, it feels terrible. E see what's doing? It's just all that. And I'll watch people just grind away. And it's really just their brain taking that square peg and jamming it into a round hole. Yeah. And like, okay, whoa, 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 time out, time out, time out. You just ate something really delicious. Like what sound would you make? Mm, it's not going to be, mm, it's going to be something a little <laughs> Something more delicate, more communicating happiness and bliss. What does it brain will find that if you can really imagine yourself eating something delicious? And you know, if that doesn't, I have other triggers. But the point is, the the uh, procedure needs to change from comfort down instead of familiar up. That's so great, so great. 
because, you know, there's a point in the day if I'm just working and mixing and not talking all day, there's a very sleepy voice. It's like waking up in the morning and it even hurts to talk. You don't even want to talk. And I realize if I just play a talk and come different pitches, these are very easy, but who I don't talk up here. <laughs> but that would be a better place to start the vocal exercises. It's the same in my legs when I sit all damn day, right? When yeah. I... Ugh, I make a grown man noise because I'm not stretching my legs and I'm as I should. And so just like the stretching of the vocal membranes, talking up there, right? That's no different than doing our yoga in the morning. So the idea of stretch, the comfort of ease, right? That's just a different doorway in than and and using a bad, yeah. common. I remember hearing James Taylor say that uh, the voice is just a muscle and you just have to use it. You have to keep exercising it. And then certainly all the videos I watch of yours just keep reinforcing. It's use it. Use it and and take care of it. And I love hearing the the comfort moment there. That's perfect. Because every time I hear someone say that, that the voice is a muscle, it clicks off in my brain. The the voice is a community of muscles. Hmm. And so it's relationships and any relationship you can have an, an off moment. And so the <laughs> are reflecting that their actions are reflecting that mm. just the, the singularity of that image of like your voice is like your bicep. You just got to, you know, exercise it. <laughs> this is like your arm, including your fingers. There's all these ligaments and all these muscles, wow. same pharynx. And so you can you can make beautiful things happen with your hand or you can put it in a sling and just, you know, like put it in dry dock for the day. Mm. Relationships occur inside our body in the same way they occur outside our body and in, in our lives, in other words. And so the relationship of air pressure to fold resistance, the relationship mm. of the coupling of this acoustic cavity above to the vibration. So in other words, if the pitch and the pipe don't match, that relationship becomes very antagonistic. Whereas if the pipe was tuned like a church organ, right? All the pipes are tuned to each pitch. Mm-hmm. Your throat to the note you're speaking or singing, you've got this grace all of a sudden. You've got this relationship that is creating flow. When the air is proportionate, that's great. So it's it's more that the voice is a series of relationships and we're looking for flow. So if any time I don't feel flow, I'm asking, okay, where, where along the river, is there a tree falling? That's kind of blocking the flow. <laughs> yeah. Relationships all the way down to my feet may be interfering with this flow. I'm trying to achieve between inspiration and phonation. Wow. What about mic technique? I noticed once I got better microphones and better preamps that all of a sudden I had mouth noise in my recordings and I never really had that before. (laughs) I guess they were there and I wasn't hearing them. (laughs) And so uh, I'm a big advocate of internalizing mic technique that if you're using pull away stuff and and then you're allowing antagonistic behavior to exist in your phonations Hmm. and when you think about those boy bands or britney spears or that era when they had the wig mics the headset Mm -hmm. mic yeah 
singers couldn't pull away on the high notes. They couldn't, you know, do anything. So they had massive amounts of compression on mm-hmm. the right. And and so uh, learning. My analogy is always instruments are always mic'd, and the mic never moves. Mm-hmm. Especially drum kit, right? So those mics along the toms and the snare. When when the part calls for me digging into the snare drum and really whapping it. The engineer doesn't come out and pull a mic away. Stays close mic'd. And when I'm doing ghost notes, mic's exactly where it is because yeah. are a big part of playing the drums. Right. So same with singing. So, you know, back when I performed a lot towards the end there, I would sound check and the mic would be very close to my mouth. And I would say, turn this off. I'll give you my hottest signal. Wow. You the mic to this so that I don't, I don't need to work the system so much. Often I find people using mic technique as a adjunct to singing technique. Yeah. I'm specifically talking about the studio though. Like I even heard that uh, Roy Orbison sang very, very quietly. Like you'd almost have to be right up next to him to hear him singing, whether he was live or in the studio. Absolutely. Same thing with Shania Twain, uh, many singers. Yeah. Uh, very soft. And Vega, I would think half the time she was speaking, how could they get her out over the band? You know, the Billie Eilish, that, that, you know, breakthrough album. Yeah. Spring. Off, just, like, just barely coming out of her mouth. Wow. So, uh, the point is, those are appropriate sentiments and sounds for that, for that music, right? And then you... It's like Bruce Springsteen, they're just hollering into the microphone. Uh, <laughs> don't need to be loud in a recording situation, right? But the point is, that's how the song goes. That mm. is warranted. Yeah, energy. And the signal should be loud. I'm, I'm all for it. Lean in. And when the signal should be soft, that's, you know, that's what people are responding to is the physicality of singing. And... Mm as primal as drums so in a mix if you hear a snare drum that's hit hard but it's buried in the mix there's still no doubting that that drum was hit soundly mm. hear somebody yelling in the background of a mix like uh Black Sun! and he's he's screaming in the back of that chorus but it's <laughs> buried in the mix and it's energy of it is what gives that that haunting feeling of yeah. that and yet, verse of that, he's just really conversational in those verses. And his voice, incredible, lovely timbre. Because, because you sense the horsepower that's available to him, but he's not utilizing it. <laughs> People have said that compliment to me many times. Like, wow, it's amazing how much restraint you have to hold back uh, and not overblow anything or overplay or oversing. And I'm like, I don't have tons of power. <laughs> when I was like five years old and younger, I had the highest, squeakiest, loudest voice. And I was probably told to shut up constantly. And then I remember being like 10 years old and playing guitar a whole year, writing my own songs. And my dad being so proud, putting me on a table with my guitar and a chair to uh, play for like family reunions and like 150 people clamoring around me going, can you sing any louder? We can't hear you, Lauren. You know, and you'd be like, ah. <laughs> it's been like, uh, 
an ongoing theme, like you were saying about your, your dad, because it was great. He was so proud, but who knew anything about a sound system? You know, I, like actually, give the kids some support, you know. <laughs> Where's the roadie when you need it? Yeah. Uh, All right. Like to say or ask as a wrap up? Just thank you so much. It was so cool. I feel like we could even just hang out and it would be a great, uh, a great hang. <laughs> thank you for asking me. It was awesome. And I'm so happy that you got into specific things and, and, and uh, things that matter so much, not only to you personally, but uh, to singers everywhere. So definitely tell everybody to get your stuff and go onto YouTube and check it all out. Yeah, my uh, YouTube channel, I guess, would be the best place because there's, uh, you know, a lot of videos about all types of things. There's plenty of exercises there, but also the, the psych and the ne neurology of singing, which I think is yeah. important. So uh, voicelesson.com is the, is the location. Fantastic. It was great, Mark. Thank you so much. Good to see you again. Take care. I love that. Thank you so much, Mark. That was so cool. What a lovely hang. You can get Mark's book, The Rock and Roll Singer's Survival Manual, right on Amazon, and I recommend that you do. Check out his videos on his YouTube channel, voicelesson.com, and check out his website, voicelesson.com, where you can sign up and take some lessons. We can all, all benefit from knowing more about how to take care of our voices. Thanks so much, everybody. Keep singing, keep writing your songs, keep playing in your studio. Go make some stuff.